to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. Um, grab the Bible, turn to Philippians 1, page 981 is where we're going to be looking this morning. We actually believe here that the Bible literally is the Word of God. It is, it is God speaking to us. It's God revealing himself to us. It tells us who he is. It tells us what we must believe about him. It tells us how we can know him and be in relationship with him. And if all that's true, if the Bible really is a word from God to us, then why would we do anything but read the word and make sure we understand that word? That's my job. That's what we do here every Sunday morning. I read a portion of God's word. I do my best to explain what it means and then how it applies to your life today. So we take a book. We start at the beginning. We work through it verse by verse for many months. Genesis is going to take us years uh, until we get to the end of that book. And then we start another. So today, the next passage simply happens to be Philippians 1, chapter, verse 8. That's just the next passage. And I know it's Easter. I know everybody gets all dressed up and there's candy to be eaten and maybe eggs to be hunted. I know I should probably do a resurrection uh, text. Um, that stuff's fine. That stuff's good. But I thought it could be good for us to simply continue on in what we've been doing and see how this passage and thus every passage connects to Easter and how thus every passage could be an Easter passage. So, yes, happy Easter. That's good. That's fine. But happy Resurrection Sunday. It's fine and good to celebrate Easter, but... Scripture never gives us any sort of calendar that we're supposed to follow. Scripture doesn't lay out for us special celebrations or holidays that we're supposed to set apart. We are a Baptist church, which means that we do what Scripture says. We try to follow Paul when he says to not go beyond what is written. And Scripture never says, hey, set apart this one Sunday. It's extra special. This will be the Resurrection Sunday. Well, we don't make that big of a deal out of the one day. We don't make up a calendar because biblically the church calendar is fundamentally a weekly calendar. The only calendar God gives us is the weekly rhythm of six days of work and then one day of rest. This day called the Lord's Day, called Resurrection Sunday, which is the day every single week when we gather and we remember and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we meet on Sundays, because this was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why we celebrate it every single week. So it's not wrong to celebrate the resurrection on Easter. We just want to more emphasize the resurrection by saying, no, 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 this is what we celebrate every single Sunday. Our aim and goal is to celebrate it every Sunday and then let that every Sunday celebrate, celebration infuse and inform the other 313 days of the year. So I want to take this passage, which is just our next passage, and I want you to see it in light of the resurrection. I want you to see that everything we're going to look at is only possible because of the resurrection. So we're looking at Philippians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He started a church 10 years before this letter in the city of Philippi, which is in modern day Greece. And now he wants to write to them to thank them for their partnership, their communion with him in the work of the gospel. He wants to encourage them and he encourages them by pointing them to Jesus Christ. Right, so my goal this week and every week is to encourage you by pointing you to Jesus 
Christ. All of God's work is about Jesus. Uh, Not just the red letters. All the letters are about Jesus. So this word is about Jesus. Easter is about Jesus. And we want to see today how all of this kind of comes together. And so let's do that this morning using the theme of prayer. We're going to talk about prayer because Paul in our passage is praying. We saw in verse 4 that Paul regularly and joyfully prays for the church. We then saw that we all share a communion in prayer. The people of God pray for the people of God. Well, what do they pray? Well, these verses tell us. We've seen that we pray. Now we're going to see what we are to pray. What do you pray for? Because you do pray. Even if you would identify yourself not as a religious person, you pray. You may call it thinking or wishing or daydreaming, but you are speaking. You are requesting. You cannot help it. Everyone does it. It's natural. We were made for prayer. And the content of those prayers are revelatory. What you pray for reveals what you live for. Your prayers reveal your loves. Jesus has very famously and wisely said, where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. In other words, your wallet or your bank account reveals your heart. Where you spend reveals what you love. All of my money goes, like 99%, goes to my five ladies. Then the little that's left over goes to good takeout food. Then cable so I can watch my TV, my my teams. Devastating news, our TV was not working this morning. Talk about distraction on Resurrection Sunday. I don't know what we're going to do, but pray for me. And then the rest of my money goes to books. So you can tell what I love by tracking my spending. Similarly, you can tell what you love by tracking your praying. What do you pray for? Who do you pray for? The content of your prayers will reveal the content of your heart. So I want us to look this morning together at what Paul prays for. This is what Paul wants for you. We tend to pray for health issues, a new job, for money, for comfort, pleasure, ease, maybe winning the lottery or something. But what you really need is this. We're going to look at four things. Very simple outline this morning. You need this. So Paul prays for this. Four points, four words. We're going to look at love, knowledge, righteousness, and glory. Here's the whole sermon right here. Here's what Paul prays for. He is praying for a love Rooted in knowledge that results in righteousness that glorifies God. A love rooted in knowledge that results in righteousness that glorifies God. Ultimately, what Paul is praying for is that they and that you would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. That's what you need to know. So now let me try and convince you of that by looking in great detail at this passage. So let me read it for you first. We're in Philippians chapter 1. We're jumping into the middle of the paragraph there. We're starting in verse 8, and I'll read down there to verse 11, and then we'll pray. But this is God's word for you this morning. Paul writes, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness 
that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you would bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your word is living and active and that it is sharp. Lord, I believe that your word will not return to you void. It will accomplish what you want it to accomplish this morning. And we pray that that thing is the encouragement of saints and the conviction of sinners. Father, we pray that you would bring our hearts to life so that we can see and understand this passage that already is alive. Father, I desperately need you to work through your word in this time. Father, I love Jesus and I want to love him more. I'm desperate. I yearn to love him more and I yearn for these people to love him more as well. Father, I cannot do that, but you can do that. Father, show us Christ. Show us how beautiful and desirous he is this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we start with love. Love is the main focus and thrust of Paul's prayer. He's primarily praying for love. But first look at verse 8 and let's see the content of the context of his prayer. He prays for love from love. In other words, Paul first wants them to know how much he loves them. It's because he cares for them that he prays for them. Because he loves them, he wants love for them. Look at how he puts it. For God is my witness. That's, that's strong language. He, he calls on God. The God who does not change the God who cannot lie, the God who sees and judges the hearts of men to testify to the truthfulness and the intensity of what Paul is about to say. Paul's, he's taking an oath. That is never something to do lightly. But Paul means what he's about to say, and so he's not afraid to use the strongest language possible. He's saying God knows and God sees. God can testify how I yearn. For you. We don't use the word yearn much anymore, but it's a strong word, a word of desire and of longing. Paul does not feel dispassionately about the Philippians. Paul is not some heartless, unfeeling stoic. Paul feels strongly and passionately for his people, and he continues to demonstrate that love in how he writes. Look at what it says. He yearns for them with great affection. In the Greek, this is a beautiful, if not somewhat graphic, metaphor. Right? If you're not aware, the New Testament was not written in English. It was not written in King James English or modern day English. It was written in the Greek. None of us, I think, speak Greek in here. So we're reading an English translation of the original Greek. And in the Greek, where you see the word affection, it literally says guts. It says the inward Hearts. We would use the word heart today, but the ancients were smarter than us, right? You don't feel anything in here in the chest. If you do, that's a bad sign. The physical heart is just an organ that pumps blood. Everything happens here in the mind. The Bible uses the term heart, soul, mind, spirit, all to refer to the same thing. It's who you really are at your core. That's your heart. But when you feel strongly about something, where do you feel it? You physically feel it, not here, but here. Can you see my gut on the top tall enough? Can you see? I'm working on it right now. Can you, you feel it right here? Right? So we have language like this. You get sick 
to your stomach. You have butterflies in your stomach. You feel it deep in your gut. That's where we feel. So it's guts, not the heart. And that became the metaphor for strong emotion and affection. So Paul says, I feel for you with the guts, with the depths of affection. But it's not even just that. It's not just strong affection. Look, he keeps going. He says it's the very guts. It's the very affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul, as passionately as he feels, it's just a man like us. He's limited. He's imperfect. He's sinful. So his love is good. The love that we can have for one another is good. But it is nothing compared to the love of Christ. The unlimited, perfect, holy one. Paul doesn't just love. He loves in and with Christ's love. And we're about to see the infinite depths of that love for us in a moment. So out of his great love for them, he prays for love for them. And look at what he does in verse 9. Now, here's our first point. He loves them. Now, here's his prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Stop. So the main thing, this is the main idea. Main thing Paul's praise for is love. But let's define our terms. Let's make sure we understand what love means. Uh, The word love is virtually meaningless today. It basically means nothing. Everyone talks about it. No one knows what it means. Everyone says it. No one does it. For most of us, our understanding of love comes primarily from pop songs and from romantic comedies and from Valentine's Day. And so Paul's prayer here for love could sound very sweet and sentimental. Oh, that's so nice. Like, love love one another, right? All you need is love, the song says. Oh, we sing about the power of love. Songs ask, what has love got to do with it? Stevie Wonders just calls to say that he loves you. James Taylor sings how sweet it is to be loved by you. Etta James, the wedding dance song. Did we dance to this? I don't know if we danced to this. My sister danced to this, to the Etta James. At last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over, and life is like a song. It's love. The Backstreet Boys say, I will love you like I never love again. Beyonce is crazy in love. I looked this one up. I didn't know this one. I looked it up. There's someone named Selena Gomez, and she sings... I love you like a love song, baby, and I keep hitting repeat. (laughs) That's terrible. Uh, So again, I could go on and on and on. Love is one of our favorite things to talk about and to sing about. And yet, do we really understand it? We think of love and we think attraction. We think romance. We think emotional connection. It makes you feel good and warm and bubbly. This love affirms you and it fulfills you. It's something that apparently just happens to you, right? So we have language about falling in love. People come and say, oh, well, we've fallen out of love. We talk about love at first sight. So again, the whole world knows that love is really, really important, but I don't think we really know why or what it really is. Let's be clear. Paul is not praying for this type of pop song kind of love. He is praying for something much better, maybe a higher love, if we're going to stick with pop song lyrics. 
As we're going to see in great detail in chapter 2, Paul is praying primarily for their love for one another, and we're going to see what that actually looks like. But I want us to see that that love is a love that is dependent on and first rooted in their love for God, which is itself first dependent on God's love for them. Let's look real quick, if you want. I'm going to be in 1 John 4 for a second. You can turn there if you would like. Page 1023. There's a lot of love stuff in 1 John. It's an excellent book. Uh, listen to 1 John 4, 19. Page 1023. Here's what John writes. Same idea. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Right, so his love comes First, But still we haven't defined our term. What exactly does that mean? What is love? Well, John tells us earlier in chapter 4. Look up at verse 7. There he tells us that we are to love one another, for love is from God. So if you truly love in this way, you'll know that you have been born of God and know God. If you don't have this love, he says, you don't know God. Why not? Verse 8. Well, it's because God himself is love. God doesn't just do love. God is love. But still, what does it mean? Verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. God loves, and so God acts. Right? God loves, and so God seeks the good of the loved. The love that Paul is praying for here in Philippians 1 is not just kind of some sort of love as affection, but it is love as action. It is the love that puts others before you, that puts their needs before your own, and then acts and sacrifices to serve them and to seek their good. That's what love is, an active, other-seeking, other-serving love. And how different is that than the feel-good, romantic, emotional, you-complete-me kind of love of popular culture? That's not love at all, actually. But this is, this is the kind of love, 1 John 4, that Paul wants for the Philippians. And this is the kind of love that you need. Maybe you are so jaded about love because not only are you looking for love in all the wrong places, but the thing that you're looking for is maybe not actually love in the first place. In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus takes the whole law. We think law and love are different. Jesus says otherwise. He takes the whole law and he summarizes it with the two great commandments. What's the law about? Love God, love your neighbor. Right? See how entirely other focused both law and love are? There's no love yourself there. The whole world defines love selfishly. Love yourself. Follow your heart. Be yourself. And yet, we're all miserable. Because we're focusing in the opposite direction of where we were created to be 
focused. You were created to be turned outward. You were created to thrive on a vertical other focus, loving God, which then leads to a horizontal other focus, loving others. And surprisingly, it's actually that other focus that then itself brings you the meaning and the fulfillment and the joy that you've been looking for by trying to live for yourself. Ironically, we find what we need not by looking within, but by looking without. We find the joy that we're all so desperate for, not by focusing on self, but by focusing on others. If you're miserable, maybe it's because you swallowed the world's lie that you should live for and love yourself. It will not and it cannot work because you were created by God and you were created for God. So the first thing Paul wants for them is this love. He prays that you would know the love of God. He prays that you would love God. And he prays that that love would then lead to a love for others. That's love. And it's got everything to do with it. So that's the first thing he prays for, but he keeps going. Let's look at point number two. Paul also prays for knowledge, a love that is rooted in knowledge. Look at the rest of verse nine. It's not just love, but it is a love with knowledge and all discernment. Now, this should really be a subpoint of point number one. Um, so I'll try to be brief, but I wanted to separate it out to make sure we draw attention to this. Right, Paul is further distinguishing the love that he is talking about from the love that we usually sing about on the radio. Not only is this love not about getting, but giving, not about your good, but the good of others, but it's also a love that is rooted and wrapped in knowledge. Right, we tend to drive a hard wedge between heart and mind, between feeling and thinking. Paul never does that. The Bible never does that. Love and knowledge go hand in hand. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that you cannot have this kind of love without first having this knowledge. Again, consider the classic story of boy meets girl. The movie, you know, the lights drop, time slows down, the spotlight zeroes in on the girl. He, he locks eyes with her across the room, and in that moment, everything changes. And then later on, he's sharing about this with a friend. There's, there's hearts and cupids fluttering around his head. And so he says to someone else, it was love at first sight. No, it wasn't. That's stupid. I'm just, that's, that's stupid. That's not love. He doesn't know her. Maybe it was lust at first sight, but real love requires knowledge. Biblically, there is an intimate love and knowledge connection. You cannot love something that you do not know. That's not how it works. It makes no sense to say that you love God without knowing God. Knowing God is loving God, and loving God is dependent upon knowing God. Love depends upon knowledge. Think about it. Think about it with my wife. We have a lights down, uh, lock eyes across the room moment at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina back in 2008, or at least a one-sided one. Um, it, it was definitely attraction. I was very attracted to her, so I did what any honorable young church-going man would do. I stalked her. Um, <laughs> 
Facebook is at least good for something. Uh, so I, I tracked her down, but then what did I actually do? What did I do? I talked to her. She'll say I cornered her, but I talked to her. I asked her questions. I got to know her. And as attracted to her as I initially was, I quickly became more and more attracted to her the more I got to know her. And at that point, a real love began to blossom. A love not just rooted in attraction. Attraction's good. Romance is good. Not just feeling. Feeling is good, but in knowledge. And here's the thing that makes no sense to our culture today. If this is what love actually is, and it's rooted in this, this is why, going on 10 years and a couple of months of marriage, I can say that I love her more now than I did then. There's nothing new. We're both getting older. There's nothing fresh or different. But there's a growing love because it's rooted in knowledge. Some of you that have been married for 30 and 40 and 50 years understand this. This makes no sense to the world. You can actually grow older and start falling apart and then actually love each other more as you get to know one another. And as this love is rooted in knowledge and the seeking the good of the other. Knowledge matters. Again, listen, that's why we emphasize the word here. This is why I preach long sermons. And this is why we devote ourselves to Bible study. You cannot believe in God and love God if you do not know God. And it is in knowing him, it's knowing him that we were created for. And it is this word, it is the Bible, it is the means by which God reveals himself to us. This is how God speaks. There's not another way. It's through this. Right? And so we read and we study and we learn. But again, not just to learn, but to love, to delight, to know. And as we get to know him, we see the great lengths that he has gone through to save his people. And we then begin to long for him and desire for him the more we see and recognize his intrinsic goodness. And listen, that's what salvation is. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just to intellectually agree to some things about Jesus. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. I believe in all that stuff. Now, let me go get on with my life. Well, that's, that's not how it works. But it's, it's to love Jesus. It's to know him and it's to desire him and to put your faith and your trust in him, which then leads you to live for him and become like him because you love him. The loving comes from the knowing. Get to know God. Read his word. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, see me right after the service and I will give you one. You don't know how to read the Bible? See me right after the service, and we can set up a time to get together, and I will read it with you. If you want the love, you've got to start first with the knowledge. Paul wants them to love one another. It, too, has to start with the knowledge. They need to first know God and grow in their love for him, and then they need to know one another and then grow in their love for one another. And as we say a lot around here, right, quality time is dependent on quantity time. Love is dependent on knowledge, is dependent on presence. Get to know the people around you. Take the initiative to connect, invite someone over to eat, seek to know each other, and then let's trust that God will continue to grow the love in this 
place. So we need love. But Paul wants you to understand that there can be no love without knowledge and discernment. So the what of Paul's prayer is love rooted in knowledge. But why is that what Paul prays for? What is the result of such a love? Well, he tells us point number three. Look at verse 10. Notice how he starts in verse 10 with a so that. Here's what this love leads to. I want this for you so that this will happen. Here's what you really need. Verse 10 and 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This should be about four points, um, but I've condensed it down to one. We need to talk about approving what is excellent. We need to talk about purity, blamelessness. But we're going to kind of summarize all of that under the heading of righteousness. So let's run through the first three quickly, and then let's camp on righteousness. What does it first mean so that they can approve what is excellent? Well, the word approve means to examine. It means to, to put to the test. It's to prove something by testing it. You have two rocks. One is a quartz. One is a diamond. There may be some surface similarities, but it's very, very important that you be able to distinguish between the two. Don't give your fiance a ring with a quartz on it. Uh, it's important that you understand what makes one precious and one worthless and not just recognize it, but then choose and act upon the right one. A love that is rooted in knowledge is also going to be a discerning love. Guys, discernment is a desperately needed skill these days. Sitting right now in your pocket, maybe buzzing right now as I speak, or sitting in your purse is a treasure trove of triviality. That's good. A treasure trove of triviality. You spend mindless Hours scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, watching pointless videos, giving up entire days to binge a TV series. Everything that you look at on that thing is drowning in flashing advertisements that are desperate to distract you and grab your attention and convince you to spend your time and your money on something that doesn't matter and that you do not need. Our 21st century social media age is one in which we are assaulted by the tyranny of the trivial. Listen, spiritual warfare is not demon possession or haunted houses or spinning heads and the vomiting stuff like in the movies. Spiritual warfare today is this distraction. That's how Satan operates. It's grab you with what doesn't matter, convince you to obsess over what doesn't matter, convince you to spend all of your time and all of your money thinking and pursuing what doesn't matter. That's spiritual warfare. That's how Satan works and wins. He distracts you with the trivial. Paul knows that, and so Paul prays. He prays for a discerning love. He prays for the wisdom for you to be able to recognize what really matters, and to begin to pursue and live for what really matters. And when this happens, when you get to know the Lord and this love and the discernment starts to grow, you begin to develop a taste and a desire for what lasts. And your priorities, I'm just now beginning to learn this and experience this, and I'm 35, but your priorities start to begin to align more and more with 
God. The superficial begins to be replaced by the substantial. You begin to realize, maybe my whole week doesn't have to be ruined because my team season is over. Maybe that doesn't really matter. You begin to realize, it may not be the end of the world if you don't watch the final season of Game of Thrones. You start to think that maybe, just maybe, the world isn't actually desperate to read about your political outrage or to see the cute new outfit or hairstyle or to know what you had for dinner. I don't care. You start to understand that all that junk and all the time that we waste on social media actually doesn't really define us and fulfill us. We start to see, and I'm so thankful for this, and it's just beginning. I love the world too much still, and I want to love it less. But by God's grace, I'm at least starting to see that the things that the world says are of value may not actually matter at all. And so Paul wants you to see and approve and choose what is excellent. That's what love does. Maybe I don't need to give the three hours to the game. Maybe it needs to go to my girls. Maybe that's something more valuable. And what is excellent is, is what lasts It's what is good. It's what is morally right. It's what is edifying. And Paul wants you to increasingly desire and pursue those things. It wants you to see that, hey, man, maybe the thing that everyone is going after is actually worthless. And he wants this for you. The second half of verse 10, here's another purpose statement. That you may be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Let's be clear. God's goal is not just to make us loving. His goal is to make us holy. Holy. The world thinks that to love is to affirm and to approve the other just as they are. God disagrees. Because he loves us, he refuses to leave us just as we are. Because he loves us, he shows us where we're wrong. And then he begins the work of shaping us and transforming us. He is making us pure. And the word means one who is sincere, one who has integrity. He's making us blameless. The word means one who does not stumble or falter or one who does not cause others to stumble or falter. He's making us right and good or in other words, summing it all up, it says he is making us righteous. That's what the word says. Righteousness just means Rightness. It means right with. It means to have the approval of God. It means to be right with the righteous one. You cannot be with God without being righteous. I want to be clear on that. You cannot be with the righteous God unless you yourself are righteous. And so the question then is, well, how can anyone be righteous? We all know each other. And you're all thinking right now, well, how can that guy be righteous? Well, let's answer that by looking at the timing of what Paul says here. His prayer is that we would be kept pure and blameless, that we would be righteous when? For the day of Christ. This is the second time in five verses that Paul has used that phrase. He used it up in verse 6 as well. We talked last time about our, our communion confidence our hope, our security, our assurances in the fact that it is God who begins and finishes faith. He begins the work of salvation in verse 6, and since it is he who begins it, it is he who will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus 
Christ. Well, when is this day of Jesus Christ? Well, let's look at chapter 3. Just look over there across the page to chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Paul says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. That's the day of Christ. It's the day when the awaiting stops because Christ returns. So the question then is, how can we be ready for this return? We'll look a few verses earlier up in chapter 3. In verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul runs through a list of all of his good qualities. He runs through a list of all the things that we try to use to justify ourselves. We use our family, our religious pedigree, our knowledge, our education. We take those things that look, I'm good and I matter because of these things. But then Paul says he counts all of that as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. In verse 8, he says he counts everything as garbage, as rubbish. All the good things that we love and pursue and seek after to give our lives meaning and value, to identify ourselves, to justify and prove ourselves, Paul says all of that is nothing compared to gaining Christ. Paul is literally willing to sacrifice everything if he gets Jesus. Because Jesus is that good. As you have to understand this, that every single one of us in this room, we are all trying to prove ourselves. We are all trying to live up to some sort of standard, something that we think makes us right and good and okay. We're all trying to be a good person, whatever that means, because we think that that's enough. That's what you're doing. That's what we think righteousness is about. And listen, that's what every other religion tells you you have to do. Be good enough. Keep these rules. Follow these rituals. And if you do enough, you'll be all right. But Paul says that all of these things by which we try to be good enough are never enough. Because God's standard is perfection. And that's the standard. Absolute, perfect righteousness. So it doesn't matter if you're a better person than everyone you know. It doesn't matter if you do all kinds of good deeds. It doesn't matter if you give all your money away or feed the poor or go to every mass or say a million Hail Marys. Whatever you do that you think makes you right, Paul says it's worthless because you have to be perfect. And you're not. And I'm not. You have to be righteous to be saved. I want to be very clear. You have to be righteous to be saved. But you don't have it. And the Bible says you can't earn it. Romans 3.10, none is righteous. God is righteous, none is righteous. So what is to be done? Look at verse 9 of Philippians 3 still. We're still in 3. So Paul knows that even Paul has no righteousness. And so he knows that he needs a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes not from us, but from God. You don't have it. The good news is, is that God does. And the gospel is that you do not and you cannot earn righteousness. You cannot work for righteousness, but you can receive righteousness. It is a gift that God gives through faith. It is a gift 
that God gives uh, when we believe in Jesus Christ, the righteous one who came to take our place and who came to give us his righteousness. The gospel, as Jeff talked about last week, is that we switch places with Jesus. I am sin. Jesus is righteousness. Jesus takes my sin. I get his righteousness. I am counted righteous in God's eyes because Jesus lives for me and he dies for me. And happy Easter, he rises again. Look at verse 10, still in chapter 3. Paul wants to know Jesus. Jesus is God. Paul cannot know God without being righteous. So the wonderful news of the gospel is that he has been given Christ's righteousness through faith. Verse 10, that he may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's Easter. Again, not just Easter, but every Sunday, every Lord's Day. We are here every Sunday because it was Sunday that Jesus rose again. Paul wants us righteous at the day of Christ when Christ returns. And if there is a day in the future to come and when Christ will come, that means that right now he is alive. That means that though he died, he rose again. And listen, if he did that, Paul says, I want to know him. If this man, Jesus, came and claimed to be God, if he came and said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to God except through him, if he came to serve us and save us by dying for us in our place, but don't worry, he says, don't panic. Three days later, I'm going to rise again, defeat sin, defeat Satan, defeat death itself. If he said all that, and then he did it, then I want to know him. And there's nothing else that matters. Nothing else matters but knowing this person. That's what all of this is about. That's what life is all about. It's about Jesus. Do you really know him? The one who was dead, but who is now alive. The one who is God. The one who defeated death and sin by taking on our sin and dying our Death. I want to be clear that that is your only hope. This is the only way to be right with God. If you do not know Jesus, you are not right with God. And the only way to be right with God is Jesus. Because you have to be righteous. You're not. So the only way you can be righteous is through Jesus Christ. As there are lots of people sitting in churches this morning around the country, right in this church this very morning, who come and think they're doing something good or accomplish something or earning something by simply getting up and going to church. There's somewhere I'm from in the South, the Bible Belt, it's just full of people like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah, okay, whatever. Now I'm going to go do my thing. And Paul's saying, no, that's, that's actually not it at all. That's not faith. It's not how it works. You cannot be righteous. You cannot earn it. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And the more, the more I get to know myself, and the more I grow up and mature by God's grace, it's actually the more I see and understand how unbelievably terrible and unrighteous and how not right in and of myself I am. But praise God, then what that does is it forces me to look away from myself 
and it give, makes me give up any attempt to prove my own righteousness, and then it points me outward to the one who is righteous and who came to be righteous for me in my place and then to give me his righteousness. Listen, I am not right with God this morning because I am good. I am right with God this morning because Jesus is good. And I'm with him. He's mine. And I am his. I am in him. It is nothing that I do. It's entirely what he has already done. I don't do. I receive. I believe. I put my faith and my hope and my trust in him. That's how I get the righteousness that comes only by faith. Do you have this faith? Are you this morning right with the Christ who will return? The resurrection is actually, it's a wonderful comfort to the people of God. The resurrection is actually a, a great warning to those who are not the people of God. Because it says that everything has been done and that Christ can return at any moment. And if you are not right with him, his return is not good news. And so I take great hope in the resurrection, but then it also encourages me to say, hey, there are people who do not know this Jesus, and I want them to know him before he returns. Do you know him? Again, not just, hey, yeah, okay, Jesus. Do you love him? Is there a growing desire and affection for Jesus? Is your life beginning to revolve around him? Paul says that he wants to know nothing but Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. And it is him and that resurrection that makes everything, the love and the knowledge and the faith and all that, it makes it possible. It's the resurrection that changes everything. If Jesus is alive, the one thing that matters is that you know him. In, Re in Revelation 1.17, Jesus describes himself like this. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The keys represent authority. The keys open and shut. The one with the keys determines who's in and who is out. Jesus says, that's him. And he has the right as God who became man, who died and who rose again, defeating death in the process, which means that Jesus is the only one who can save you from the death that is coming. It is coming for for all of us, there's the physical death that we all experience, but there is also a second death, a spiritual death that the Bible defines as separation from God, as as hell. And that's the death that Jesus came to rescue us from. Do you believe in me? Though you die, yet shall you live, as we read at the beginning of the service. That's why he died. He was forsaken by God. He took the hell so that we would never have to. And the good news is, is that if we share in his death by faith, trusting in him as Savior and Lord, that means we too also share in his resurrection. Colossians 2.12 says that we were buried with him and we were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. If his death is yours, then his life is yours as well. Then his resurrection is yours as well. And that means that the one big thing hanging over your life, right, the, the death that is coming, the separation that awaits those who do not know and love God, that thing, the thing, is done away with 
by Jesus. No more fear of death. Because no more sin. Because Christ took care of that sin by taking on that sin and dying the death and then graciously giving us his righteousness. All of this is the gift of God. All of this is grace. Righteousness, not by what you do, but by what Christ has done for you. Righteousness, not by works, but by grace. And that's the only way we can be right with God. That's what Paul wants for the Philippians. That's what I want for you. A God-given, other-focused love rooted in knowledge. And such a love is only possible by the grace of God as he saves us, sets us free, makes us new, and we experience his grace growing then in our love for him and one another and becoming more like him. That's what he is doing. The righteousness that comes from God and then shows itself in love. Last point. I'm out of time. I'll be very brief. And what's the point of all of this? What's the ultimate end and outcome? Paul prays that they would love one another, that they would be righteous, holy, blameless at the coming of Christ. Why? End of verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. As that is the ultimate goal of all things. To God be the glory. Why? Great things he has done. We all, one of us, all of us want to be part of something bigger. Well, this is it. This is the bigger thing that we were all created for. It's, it's him. You continue to find yourself so dissatisfied and frustrated because you keep trying to love and live for and fulfill yourself with smaller things. But it will never work because it's not how you were designed. It's like trying to run your car on orange juice. Right? It'll never work because your car wasn't made for that. It was made to run on gas and you were made to run on God. So if you continue to insist on trying to run on something else, you will continue to break down. You were made to run on him and nothing else will work. As Augustine so famously said 1500 years ago, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Are you restless? This is the answer. Christ is the answer. Glory is the answer. His glory. God is not like us. God is not just us, but a little bit bigger and a little bit better. No, he is completely other than us. He is transcendent. He is pure being. He is total perfection. He has always been and always will be. He's perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly good and glorious. And this amazingly transcendent God made us and he made us to know him. He made us to be like him. And in our sin, we have all of us rejected this amazingly glorious God. And thus we are all of us separated from the one we were made for, the one we were made to run on. And thus we're all broken sinners deserving of death. But God, but Good Friday, but Resurrection Sunday, he did something. He sent Christ to rescue and redeem us, to bring us back to him, to bring us back to glory. He made all of this. That means it's all his. That means it's all about him and for him. He made you. And thus, you are meant to be all about him and for him. Are you? You were created to live for him and glorify him. Are you? 
Because the amazing thing is that as we do that, as we live for his glory, we actually get glory too. As we take our focus off of ourselves and put it on him, we actually get the love and the meaning and the fulfillment and the identity that we're all looking for. Romans 8.17 is about our wonderful identity in Christ. We are children of God. And then Paul goes on to say that if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glory. The day of Christ. Look back at 321. Last thing. Here it is. Here's what happens on the day of Christ. Here's what happens when Jesus returns. It says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is what is secured for us at Easter. His resurrection is our resurrection. His resurrection leads to transformation, leads to life, leads to glory. We will be like him. I will be like him. Do you know me? <laughs> That's amazing. That is unbelievable. He is so good and wonderful, and I am so the opposite of all of those things. But yet by grace and what he has done for me and what he is doing in me when he returns, I will be like him. That's the good news that resurrection guarantees for the people of God. So you can't be with God unless you are like God. And so Jesus, was who was with God and who was God and thus like God, became like us so that we could then be made like God and returned to God. So what must you do to be righteous? What must you do to be saved? Only believe. Turn from your sin and turn to him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 is so simple and clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe? Again, not just random, abstract, undefined things. It's believe that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. In other words, believe in the resurrection. It is that faith alone that saves. And so it is Christ alone that matters. And so Paul is praying for the things that matter. He prays for your love, a love rooted in knowledge. He prays that you would be righteous, right with God, based upon the work of Christ. He prays that you would glorify God. He prays that you would know him and the power of his resurrection. Guys, the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is and that he finished what he said he was going to finish. Do you know and love him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the wonderful things that Christ accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the justification, Father, the redemption, adoption, the sanctification, Father, the coming glorification, all of which is proven and guaranteed uh, for us by his resurrection. We thank you that he died. Father, we thank you that he did not stay dead. We thank you that he rose again and so doing, defeated death itself. So, Father, I pray that we would hope and delight and rejoice in Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone who does not know 
and love this Jesus, that you would do your work in your heart. Father, I pray that you would show them Christ, show them their sin, show them how Christ is the only answer uh, to that sin, Father, and grant them repentance and faith. Father, we know that you can do great things through your word, and so we ask that you would do those things now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.